Good morning and welcome to Renewal Church. If we haven't yet met, my name is Pastor Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff and we'd like to welcome you, whether you have been coming to Renewal for a long time and this is your home or this is your first time checking us out online or here in the congregation. We're happy that you're joining us this morning. Last week, Pastor Dwight mentioned that we're starting a new sermon series and we're going to be looking at the lives of the Old Testament prophets Elijah and Elisha. And they live during a time in the history of Israel where the, the kingdom is divided. There's a, a northern kingdom that's uh, known as Israel, and there's a southern kingdom known as Judah. Elijah and Elisha are prophets to the northern kingdom, and prophets have a tough job. They have to speak unwelcome truth to power. Oftentimes, they're calling kings back to the worship of God or telling them about how unjust they're being or calling people back to the true worship of the true God. And so we're looking at these two men, Elijah and Elisha, who are speaking out in a wicked time. It was a time where the, the leaders in Israel were wicked leaders. And in our passage this morning, Elijah is ministering during the reign of Ahab. Ahab is a king, a particularly wicked king, and a drought has come onto the nation of Israel. King Ahab accuses Elijah as being the one who's causing all the trouble, as being the one who is bringing about the drought, but Elijah boldly speaks truth to power and proclaims that it is Ahab and his family's commitment to worship Baal that is actually causing all the problems. There's this growing tension between the two sides. There's Ahab, his Phoenician wife Jezebel, and the prophets of the god Baal on one side, and then on the other side you have Ahab. You have, I'm sorry, on the other side you have Elijah holding on to the worship of Yahweh, holding the line himself. And there's a lot for us to learn this morning as we come to this early climax in the confrontation between these uh, two sides this morning. So with that being said, would you uh, just bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll ask the Lord to be with us this morning as we open his word. Almighty God, in you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning to see the wonders of your word. Give us grace that we may uh, clearly understand and freely choose your way of wisdom and peace and wholeness. Lord, when we fall down and fail to keep your law, point us again to your son, Jesus, who fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, illuminate our minds so that we can understand what it is that you're speaking to us this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. When things are hard in your life, where do you go for comfort? When that anxiety about the future starts to raise its ugly head, what do you do? I think most of us can admit that oftentimes we turn to things that don't really help that much. Maybe we go straight to food and, and sugar, and we need that, that sugar rush to feel just that little bit of happiness in our hardship. Or maybe sex, some little bit of pleasure amongst the pain. Or maybe it's obsessively going over our bank accounts and investment accounts, looking for some little piece of security in uncertain times. 
Or maybe buying something nice for yourself and you, that you don't really need to give you that quick dopamine rush, that buyer's high of buying something. In our passage this morning, the people of Israel are facing anxiety because of the drought, the drought in the land. Hard times have come, and the people of God are looking around for a solution to the problem. And they're, they're looking in some little way to find some comfort in their hardship. The reality of the drought meant that lives and livelihoods were at stake. Crops were going to fail. Drinking water was going to be hard to come by. People were going to go hungry and die. In these times, the people of Israel were always tempted, when things got hard, to look to other gods, to look to the nations around them and the gods that they worship, and to try to worship that God in hopes that that will bring some kind of blessing, some kind of relief. One of the gods that the people of Israel often turned to was the god Baal. And Baal worship was fundamentally about materialism. It was about receiving material blessing from God, a kind of ancient health and wealth gospel. If we worship this God, Baal, in the right way, if we say the right incantations, if we say the right words at the right times, then he will give us in return rain and crops and good fortune and fertility. Gods like Baal need to be satisfied in order for them to give us their bounty. It's a very transactional kind of relationship. Christianity has its own version of this. Some of you may have grown up in these kinds of health and wealth versions of Christianity. Maybe you've just seen some of these false preachers on TV. Joel Olstein, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Paula White. There are many out there. One of these preachers that always stands out to me is a preacher named Creflo Dollar. He can easily be found on TV and YouTube making outrageous claims of blessing. If you just give him just a little bit of your money, then that's a down payment for the blessing that God's going to give to you. If you invest the seed of what you have in his ministry, God will open the storehouses of financial blessing and prosperity in your life. He recently, uh, a few years ago, led a giving campaign to purchase a $65 million jet, which his ministry was then able to purchase. So while Creflo Dollar lives in million-dollar mansions, multiple mansions, and gets private personal jets. He preys on the weakness of those who are marginalized, seeking out money from gifts of people who really can't afford it. Or maybe a more subtle example that hits a little closer to home. There was a famous businessman and political leader right here in Philadelphia in the late 1800s named John Wanamaker. Wanamaker was a devout Presbyterian And he decided to start to transform his department store into a religious spectacle every Christmas, every year. Some of you may still go to the Wanamaker Christmas light show every year. Well, he built a a huge pipe organ and did all kinds of displays and beautiful ornaments and lights to bring people to his store to celebrate Christmas But this wasn't just out of Christian religious devotion. He also did this so that people would come to his store and buy things. It was a huge success. And not only did he do it in Christmas, he also expanded it to Easter. He became one of the richest men in America. This blurring the lines between Christianity and American materialism, this consumerism has a a long history in religious circles in this country. 
There is a syncretism happening, a false teaching that turns a relationship with God into something transactional. If we pray to God the right way, if we give God the right piece of our, of our fortune, then he will respond and give us what we need. So what does this passage that Isaac read for us this morning teach us? What does this culmination in the conflict between the prophets of this materialistic God, Baal, and Elijah, the prophet of the true and living God, show us? I think what we'll find is that turning to other gods, looking for comfort and security anywhere other than the true God, is a fool's errand. It's a path that may feel good for a moment, but will ultimately not last. It will not save you. So here's how we'll walk through this long passage this morning with these three main points. First, pick a side. Second, the folly of false gods. And finally, the God who answers with fire. So pick a side, the folly of false gods, and the God who answers with fire. We'll start with pick a side, and this is found, if you want to keep following along with me, in 1 Kings 18, the first four verses that we looked at, 20 through 24. So pick a side. What we have here is this epic showdown at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was this place of a a subpar reputation, a place where people thought of as a refuge for thieves and murderers. Because it was this high place, a place that was ultimately hard to get to in its high elevation, it was a place where various people could go and hide out, but it was also a place where religious people would go and set up altars to their God to worship their God up in the high places, various gods. And it was also a border place. It was situated on the border between Israel and the Phoenician states directly to the northwest. This is where Uh, the region that that King Ahab had found his wife Jezebel. It was the the perfect place for a showdown between the, the main god of the Phoenicians and the god of Israel. In this story of the showdown at Mount Carmel, Ahab gathers all the people of Israel at Elijah's request to come and witness this test of strength. And we see right away in in verse 21 that the people of Israel are wavering. They're limping back and forth, the text says, between their ancestral god Yahweh and this foreign new god Baal that has been brought in by Jezebel and her family. Verse 21 says, And Elijah came near all the people and said, How long will you go limping back and forth between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. What is Elijah saying to the people of Israel? No more fence sitting. No more limping back and forth between two different options. The God of Israel will not tolerate compromise. There can be no turning to other gods for rescue. No jumping back and forth. So I grew up in central Illinois, and in central Illinois, people from downstate Illinois were uh, Cardinals fans, St. Louis Cardinals fans in Major League Baseball. People from upstate Illinois were Chicago Cubs fans. I lived right on the border, so it was about 50% of the people were Chicago Cubs fans, and 50% of the people were St. Louis Cardinals fans. And you couldn't sit in between. You had to choose one, right? You had to be one or the other. Around here, maybe it's the Eagles or Cowboys or... 
maybe from the political arena, Democrats and Republicans, Hatfields or McCoys, if you're a tourist in Philly, Pat or Geno's, if you live here, Ishkabibbles or D'Alessandro's. The right answer is D'Alessandro's, by the way. The point is, in certain choices like this, you have to choose one or the other. No waffling back and forth between the two. And the call from Elijah is to pick a side. As you read this part of the story, and we often, as we read the Bible, are looking for who we are in this story, right? Where do we identify? Who are we here? A good rule of thumb is that you are not the hero. You're not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is always Jesus. Always Jesus. If you want to look for yourself somewhere in this story, look for the people who are wavering. Look for the people who are in need of rescue, who are in need of saving. For you and I, as we read this story this morning, we should see ourselves in the people of Israel. We, we know that we should have full allegiances to Jesus, full allegiances to Yahweh, but instead we are found limping back and forth between different options, between Jesus and other gods. Sometimes we find true comfort and rest in Jesus, and sometimes we find temporary relief in other gods. In, material, in the materialistic world around us, in food or sex, in power or entertainment, in money or stuff, we look to these other gods to fulfill us. And the call from Elijah is just as true for us as it was for the regular people of Israel back all those years ago. Pick a side. And if the Lord God is truly God, then follow him. If Somebody else or something else is God, follow that. But if God is truly God, follow him. But how do you know, right? How, how do we know that God is truly God? In our passage this morning, the, the prophet of God, Elijah, has an idea. He has a test to see who is the real God. He proposes that they should set two separate adjacent altars, set up two altars, and one of those would be for Baal, and one would be for Yahweh. And the test was this. Which God could send fire to consume the sacrifice of the bull meat and the wood, and which God would fail at this? So let's erect these two altars and see which God is real and alive, which God has real power and shows up. And so the prophets of Baal, they like this test. They think this is a good idea. See, because they believed that Baal was the sun god, the god who controlled the weather. He controlled the storms. He rode around on thunderclouds and sent lightning and rain. So, of course, Baal could cause lightning to come down and consume this uh, sacrifice of meat and wood on top of the altar. This would be a good test for Baal. So it was set forth that whichever God could answer by fire, then he was the true God. This would be how the people of Israel would know how to pick which side. The truth is they, they shouldn't have needed this test in the first place, but God was gracious towards them in even allowing this showdown to take place. Ultimately, this will show who is the true God, which leads us to our second point this morning, the folly of of false gods. This is in verses 25 through 29. So the stage is set for this showdown, and we read in verse 25 that Elijah basically gives up home field advantage. 
He says, all right, you all can go first. Pick out the altar that you want, pick out the location that you want, pick out the bowl that you want, find all the best wood, gather it together. You build your altar first, and you start to call upon your God to consume the wood and the meat. So the 450 prophets of Baal did just that. They set up their altar, and they began to dance around it wildly together. And they're doing anything they can to grab the attention of their God. For many hours, they danced and cried out, but nothing ever happened. There was no fire. There was no rain to quench the drought. There was only silence from their God. The only thing they succeeded in was tiring themselves out. In verse 27, we have one of the most amusing sick burns in all of Scripture. Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Elijah says that the God Baal is out going to the bathroom somewhere, he's out taking a deuce. Apparently, nature calls for Baal, so. He can't help you out. So just drop the mic and walk off the stage, Elijah. That's a pretty good burn. The taunt is one accusing the God that they serve as acting like a human being. Nothing special to see there. Just an ordinary defecating God. The prophets of Baal hear these taunts, and obviously they're riled up, they're offended, and they begin to cry out even harder for their God to show up. The, the prophets of Baal ratchet things up. They, they start to cut themselves with knives and swords, and they're crying out for Baal to respond. And there is uh, some evidence in the literature from this time that, that Baal worshipers believed that they needed to self-inflict pain and for them to let blood to free Baal from the death of the underworld to bring rain. So in other words, every year Baal would die and would be stuck in the underworld. And in order to come back to life, they would need to cut themselves and do these wild ritualistic dancing uh, in order to bring Baal back to life from the dead. He needed humans to do the work. So Baal needed human sacrifice and suffering because he didn't have the power isn't that interesting that the, the God that the king of Israel, Ahab, and the other people of Israel were drawn to was something that would ultimately just require them to hurt themselves. But for the true people of God, in Jesus, God provided himself as a sacrifice that we could not provide. He sacrificed and suffered for us out of his own power and might. He didn't need our blood for power. We needed his. You see, chasing after false gods, false idols, is just folly. It makes us look foolish, and we end up being the ones who are bleeding and worn out in the end. It reminds me of a, a recent report issued by the Spanish I.O. Foundation that between 2008 and 2021, on average, one person every 13 days dies while taking a selfie. In 2021, it was at least 24 people died in our world trying to get too close to a ledge or a waterfall or too close to some wild animal, and they would end up dying because of it, with men being twice as likely as women to die by selfie. 
We want that perfect picture, that perfect post for Insta. We want that perfect lighting with the perfect background so that many people will see the post and more people will like the post and like us and our life will be just perfect, right? But we all know that the perfectly curated social media account will never save us. It will never make us whole or loved. More likely than not, it will end up just harming us. Maybe not sending us off a cliff, but in more subtle ways, harming us. We begin to build our self-worth and our identity around how many followers we have and how they're responding to us minute by minute. It's an easy false god to get sucked into, but one that if you give it your heart, it will only lead to folly and death. Like the prophets of Baal, circling wildly around the dry altar, cutting themselves, trying to get the attention of their false god, a god that is nowhere to be found. So that brings us to our third and final point this morning. The conclusion of our story is this. It is the God who answers with fire in verses 30 through 40. The prophets of Baal can't get their God to show up. So now it's Elijah's turn. In verse 30, he tells the people of Israel to to come near, to gather around. Let's see what God's going to do. And he, he rebuilds the altar of the Lord, the altar of Yahweh that has been thrown down. He rebuilds the altar with 12 stones and says, Israel shall be your name. This is very similar to what Moses did uh, in Exodus 24. There's these covenant ceremonies that are taking place after Moses has received the Ten Commandments and additional laws from the Lord for God's people. And so Moses gathers the people and he builds a altar with 12 stones. And so there's a lot going on symbolically here. There's Uh, Remember that we're still in this divided kingdom. The people of Israel are divided. They're not on the same page. They're worshiping false gods. There's wickedness and division amongst God's people. And this whole scene is just a very simple, basic reference to Israel being restored one day in united worship, that God's going to gather the 12 tribes of Israel together again, that God isn't going to leave them in their broken estate. His covenant still stands, even if his people are feckless and faithless. And now God is going to show them once again that he is still for them and the only God that should be on their minds. So Elijah builds this 12-stone altar. He puts the wood and the bull meat on the rebuilt altar. And he takes again that number 12, 12 jugs of water, four jugs filled three times each. And he has that water poured over the altar and soaks the wood and the meat. Elijah made it so wet that it couldn't just be any old lightning strike that sets this thing ablaze. It couldn't be a a hot coal that he slips under the wood to, to trick everybody. Something extraordinary would have to light this fire of soaking meat and wood. My family and I like to go on camping trips and road trips, and I love to sit around the campfire at night, and many of you may have experienced this, the gathering of sticks and wood, and you start to build the fire only to find out that your wood and sticks are soaked to the bone, and it's really hard to get that that wet wood to light. Well, the people of Israel who worked with wood all the time, knew what it was like to try to light 
wet wood. And they're seeing this altar just get soaked with water over and over again. And they know there is no way that this altar is going to light up. And in a simple, straightforward request to God, Elijah says in verse 36, notice no, no dancing, no running around the altar, no cutting himself. He just says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. The Lord God, the true and living God, answered them with fire. Fire from heaven. And the people could only respond in worship. They said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And I always try to read something from King leading up to this day. This year I read his speech that he gave at the 11th Convention of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. This was in 1967. It's a short speech, but it's the speech that President Obama famously pulled the line from. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it tends towards justice. Well, I was struck by another line that was actually earlier in the speech. King said this, Power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Let me say that again. Power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. I think King is right on here. Go back and and read the speech if you have an opportunity. He's talking about the divine power of God, that by necessity, the love of God moves the world towards justice. The raging power of God is awful to behold, but it is a power that is full of love. A love for people who are being pulled in wicked and unjust directions. Corrupt leaders and kings are pulling people in wrong directions, but God's love pulls them back to justice. It's a justice that pulls vulnerable people away from false narratives and false gods. Instead of hate and racism and division and inequity, we experience the power and justice of God in his love. God shows up in fire. The scene ends with the slaughter of Baal's false prophets. This is not just some ancient bit of cruelty. This is God's judgment on false prophets that is called for back in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 17. This is God protecting his vulnerable people from wolves, from evil, from injustice. In this kind of fire and judgment, there's also a looking forward to that great day of judgment when Jesus returns 
to judge the living and the dead that we read about in the New Testament in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Revelation 21 and 22. We eagerly await that day when Jesus returns, not because we want to see wicked people punished, not because we want to see those who are evil burn or those who are abusive be made an example of. We eagerly await the the coming judge because we know that his power is full of justice and love. While working for love and justice and for the kingdom of God here and now, we also can look forward to that day when God will finally and fully answer with fire. When he returns and establishes his kingdom fully, he will put death to death and sin will be no more and the first shall be made last and the last shall be made first. Brothers and sisters, this is what I know this morning. When that great day comes, when God answers with ultimate fire, you want to be found in union with Jesus. You want to be found worshiping him and him alone, not turning to some small G God of this world, of this materialistic world. Maybe you are here this morning and you are being tempted to turn to some other God. Maybe you're being tempted to turn away completely and believe in no God at all. And make no mistake, being an atheist or agnostic is still worshiping another God. It's just a God of your own design. The truth is, we all have a choice to make. We must pick a side. The gods of this world or the God who answers in fire. The God who answers with fire requires total surrender. There can be no limping between him and other options. I urge you to have faith in God. Have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the only good and right response when we experience the fire of the Lord Jesus Christ is to worship like the people of Israel and to bow down and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The end of this chapter of this story is that after God shows up in fire, God opens up the clouds and he sends rain and brings an end to the drought. What the people have wanted and needed all along was right before them. What they needed to do was to keep their eyes on the one true and living God, the God who answers by fire. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's our tradition here at Renewal to take a few moments at the end of the sermon just to quiet our hearts and to reflect. So I'll ask the the worship team to go ahead and come forward. And as they're coming forward, to go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads and begin to reflect. Where are you this morning? Are you wrestling with your faith in God? Do you feel your heart turning to the left or to the right, to the gods of this world? Are you discouraged by the injustices that you see around you? Are you filled with anxiety and fear? And in that, do you feel drawn to the comforts of earthly power or entertainment or food or drink or sex or social media stardom? or money, or whatever material, earthly thing pulls at you. Are you feeling that this morning? Friends, I 
I pray that you feel the God of the universe, the God who answers by fire, calling you back to himself this morning. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have sent us your Son, Jesus, to save us. We admit we could never save ourselves. Our, our work, our blood, our sacrifice could never be enough. It's not enough for you, and it's only self-indulgent and harmful for us. Father, help us to turn away from the idols that surround us and help us to turn to you, the true and living God. Lord, may we be people who know Jesus, the only one who showed us how mercy and truth meet. The only one who shows us how justice and peace kiss. Lord God, help us to be empowered by your spirit to serve as your very presence here in West Philadelphia and in the neighborhoods that we live. Help us to believe that you have the power and authority to take us and others out of the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place and living the life that we could not live and dying the sacrifice that we could not provide for ourselves. Lord, we worship you and praise you, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, you who deserve all praise and glory now and forever. Amen. Would you all please stand with us and sing this final song of praise.